right, we're back. One thing that's worth noting is that in metal, there are anti-Christian bands out there. Uh, we're not going to pretend that that's not true. In a lot of the, particularly the genres known as death metal and black metal, uh, they're you know, very anti-Christian. and the, You see their roots going back to, to bands that came out generally of the, the early 80s, uh, Slayer, Celtic Frost, Venom, uh, King Diamond, and his Merciful Fate band were very much of that genre. But particularly Slayer, I can speak to them a little bit better than others. That their music is is very chaotic. It's just it's extremely high tempo, but very much lacking in in any sort of melody. Their their vocals are well, they're just trash. You, know, you can, there's nothing beautiful about it, and it's very hard to discern. Of the lyrics, but generally, I would I think to me where critics of music have missed the boat is that if if music has a a structural form, you know, if it has structure, it has order. Generally, you can say that the the at least the instrumental or the songwriting of it, it reflects something of a Christian worldview, even if lyrically you don't like it. But where you you have a violation of the musical structure itself there's very often a, a full breakdown lyrically as well so you'll have the uh, accompanying anti-christian top or blasphemous lyrics but overall you know, melody harmony rhythm you know, complex hooks and riffs and large choruses are are found in in um, non-chaotic music and in music that would be considered to have, uh, to have a christian structural basis on it and most of the metal and hard rock from the 80s had melody and had harmony and had rhythm and had big choruses. Frequently, not always, sometimes it was more of you know one man, who a vocalist that would do almost all the singing. But a lot of bands did employ uh, large choruses, whereas like Def Leppard or Van Halen, frequently all the members of the band would chime in on the choral chorus section. Right. Uh, but as the 90s wore on, um, melody increasingly was absent in a lot of music. Uh, Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, as a matter of fact, there's a, a video of him where he's, uh, I think the video's title on YouTube is like, Joe Elliott trashes 90s music. But to him, that was the biggest problem of the grunge movements and the Seattle movement, is that uh, they simply lacked melody. And it's fitting that there's a video shown of Nirvana playing, uh, what was their big hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit? Right. And you know it has Kurt Cobain sitting there, and it just you know this very introverted, uh, dour, depressing environment. And uh, yeah, I would say it was a you know form of music that lacked melody. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, one of the other uh, obvious uh, deficiencies in, in the grunge scene was lack of arranging. Uh, metal bands always would do a great job at arranging different parts to their songs that had distinctly different rhythmic uh, uh, you know rhythm section pieces um, and it would have uh, overdubs in the studio with strings and uh, for example like on Still the Night by White Snake there's a violin section in the instrumental interlude in the middle of the yes. song and uh, you know that stuff can't happen by accident. Somebody's got to think that out. Somebody's got to arrange the violins for that song, and uh, they have to have a reason for wanting it to be there. Um, you know, if they didn't care about the music, they wouldn't try and, and make these different parts to the songs. And 
it takes time to work those out um, because you have to have the whole band in sync together. And uh, so to work out all that takes a lot of effort. And uh, all that was missing out of the grunge scene. Uh, it was guys who would play four chords. The drummer would bash out some <laughs> something. He'd scream over it, and that was it. Uh, there was not a lot of effort involved in it. And uh, so, you know, the metal crowd, once again, proved their, their virtuosity, not only technically on their own instrument, but for the ability to arrange and to produce a song that is very much beyond what just the average Joe would be able to put together. And a lot of the producers at that time became well-known for being able to pull that off and made a pretty good living at it, like uh, John Mutt Lang would be a good example. Huge name, yes. Or who was the producer for Kiss's um, album Destroyer? Yeah, Bob Ezrin, another great example. He did a lot of Alice Cooper records, and he had choirs, like on uh, the Kiss song Great Expectations. Expectation had the New York Boys Boys uh, Choir. Right. Yeah, and he did that the same on thing there. on some uh, Alice Cooper records. And, uh, you know, I mean, he made major productions out of these things, and it took a lot of effort to do it. He arranged the string sections on uh, the song Beth, and uh, he arranged the harmonized, harmonized guitar part uh, for the solo in Detroit Rock City. Uh, you know, I mean, we're we're not talking about just uh, a one-off kind of, you know, rock album where they went in there and, and just made noise. I mean, this was very well thought out and took a lot of intelligence and musical integrity to pull it off. It's amazing what a, a good producer can bring to an album. And uh, on the flip side, what bad production does to an album as well, too. Oh, it's absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, the the producer is uh, something that you really don't find anymore like you used to. Uh, back in the, the 70s, it really started with George Martin uh, producing the Beatles, and people were able to recognize what value a producer could bring to a group. And the record companies were willing to pay these producers to do this for their artists in their, in their stable. And uh, we saw a proliferation of great producers throughout the 70s and even into the 80s on these metal records, and then uh, I guess the Jews that run the record industry decided that they wanted to put more money in their own pocket. So they pretty much did away with a lot of these producers, and that way they could have a smaller budget. So when they hired these grunge Seattle cretins to uh, pound out four <laughs> chords, you know, there was no production values needed at that point, and uh, they could increase their margin, which is what everything's about, you know, the shekels. So destroying the music industry was part of their financial goal. It was a you know a lot of bands would actually go out and look for different producers to work with, where they would say, "Oh, I really like the sound that you know such and such album has. Let's see if we can get you know that guy to produce this album for us." That's right. And Mutt Lang, I mean, his name is just the multi platinum albums that man has worked on as a producer are legion. Oh yeah. I think there's at least a half dozen, and they're from you know lots of different groups. Uh, ACDC, Def right. Leppard, uh, I believe even Brian Adams' album "Waking Up the Neighbors" that right. uh, Mutt Lang worked on. That I, I I can't believe how people you know, after going through the '80s and you would have these just fantastic drum sets, you know, double bass drums and just you know every variety of of cymbal and uh, even things like. Uh, miniature baby timpani drums, uh, bells. Then you get to a band like Nirvana, and they got this little tiny, 
you know, maybe seven or eight piece drum kit. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about musical regression. Right. Uh, you know, to go from something you know, like particularly like Neil Peart's drum set of Rush, you know, would considered by many of the finest, one of the finest drummers in, in the world of rock. And then you go to like you know the Nirvana drummer. It's um, you know it's embarrassing and, and you know disturbing to see things should improve as time goes on, not regress. That's right. But that's exactly what happened with the nineties. You'd see too with a lot of the you know not only you know the descent into any structural chaos, but even now where a lot of death metal and black metal bands are using what's uh, jokingly called cook is cookie monster vocals right <laughs> where you're not even trying to sing anymore or even shouting it's where they're trying to go down into their uh i guess local lower vocal registers been obviously a very much lower frequency and if any listener is unfamiliar with this term just type in cookie monster vocals and there's a couple of hilarious videos where um the people have made him have taken cookie monster and had him you know mimic uh, these death growls, and it's, it just sounds like total garbage. I think with rap and, and punk, uh, I mean, in some ways you shouldn't even call rap music music. It's just basically someone talking, right. you know, jiving. You know, they may be talking at a quick pace or at a, a slow pace, but then they'll have some sounds thrown in the background. Um, and that would be something people could argue whether that's music or not. Punk, a lot of times, uh, had kind of a chaotic background on it. Not all punk bands, of course, I don't want to unfairly categorize them, but they typically, you know, you know, leaned in an unhealthy direction. Uh, amongst popular music, you had the new wave bands like uh, Flock of Seagulls or Till Tuesday, both of which had songs I liked, but they were very much in contrast with the power pop Right. portion of the pop spectrum when power pop was much more strongly allied with with rock and roll and hard rock whereas um the new wave to me was kind of like a bizarre synthesis perhaps of punk and disco do you have a good way you would quantify what new wave music was <laughs> well you know uh at the time that it came out i just thought it was was horrific um <laughs> and uh it seemed to me to be uh shallow and lacking any musical substance uh, there was nothing there to stick but you know looking back now after all the trash that's come in the meantime <laughs> well sure right you know, I, I have to tell you i don't i don't think it was as bad as i did back then not that i necessarily like it any any much but uh, you know, like Devo and uh, even, you know, uh, Blondie, I guess, would have been considered New Wave. I uh, think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Although I always did like Blondie. Um, I did too, yeah. And uh, The Heart of Glass. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, I, I know when that came out, you know, I was rather <coughs> young, but I had to buy the 45 of it, you know, and I did. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, you know... Uh, they even then had a little better musical integrity and uh, than the bands do now. So, uh, the Clash, I guess, uh, sure could have been considered new wave. Uh, I don't know how much I do, but David Lee Roth made fun of them and called them new wave. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, new wave it it had its moment and it moved on. Uh, but unlike metal, it's still here. You know, right. There's a great line from, uh, we were talking, discussing recently about the U.S. 
festival that took place in uh, May of 1983 mm-hmm. in California, this huge outdoor music festival. And one day of it was New Wave Day. And I think it had about 100, 110,000 people in attendance, very good attendance, until you look at the next day, which was Heavy Metal Day, which had, uh, the estimate I think is over 300,000 people in attendance. Right. Uh, the lead singer for, or the vocalist for Motley Crue, Vince Neil, said that, you know, that that was the day that New Wave died and that <laughs> rock and roll took over. <laughs> At that very same show uh, was Van Halen and, and notoriously David Lee Roth, one of his classic lines. Uh, uh, he he made fun of uh, uh, New Wave himself up there by saying, uh, the only people who drink iced tea without whiskey are the Clash, baby. <laughs> ouch! Oh, ouch! Yeah, I could I could hear him say that. <laughs> very very famous concert for them. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's worth watching for anybody out there. Uh, Roth is hilarious live, and uh, they were the ultimate party band at the time. Good times, rock and roll. Yeah, you know. yeah, that's right. Versus versus grunge and you know so much of the alternative rock, which has been uh, about hating yourself and uh, being addicted to things and just living your life in a state of constant despair and misery. So yeah, and, yeah. and do you think that uh, there's any kind of a, a conspiracy behind uh, the Jewish record executives that? Let's face it, they did what they could to destroy metal and to promote grunge in its place. Uh, do you think there might be a conspiracy there? Well, certainly the uh, protocols of the learned elders of Zion uh, certainly say that they would that, that was a great way to debauch youth, to gain control of entertainments, and then progressively with time shape those entertainments in, in accord with Jewish values to weaken the Gentiles. So, right. you know, why not? I mean, they were probably a little alarmed in the 80s of where you had these big bands, most of which were not, you know, run by Jews. I mean, there were a few exceptions like Kiss with two Jewish founders for it, but by and large it was, a, you know, Goy or Gentiles that were running it. And when they got big, they could demand a larger piece of the pie from the record companies and basically, um, you know, <laughs> didn't take advice from record labels. That when Rush, for instance, uh, after its first, I think, three studio albums were not a huge success, and their next album was going to be 2112, but the record label told them, like, oh, hey, you need to do something a lot more commercial or whatnot. Well, what did Rush do? They went out and released their most experimental album yet, right. you know, 2112, and of course it was their breakthrough album, and uh, only solidified with them, like, hey, well, you know, we're never selling out. <laughs> you know, when we got as far away as we could from selling out so we did our best and a lot of other albums had that so you know what do you want to do well you destroy that movement and start creating your own bands either out of whole uh, completely out of studio cloth like Britney Spears or you're getting bands like uh, Nirvana that were easy to control or Guns N' Roses you keep more of the money and you accomplish your goal of, of debauching the goyim Exactly. Yeah, the uh, the truth is that the metal music was very masculine, and it uh, had all the qualities that we've already aforementioned of loyalty being very important and uh, integrity, and uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of good characters 
characteristics in the music that uh, you know they wanted to see and destroy because they knew what the plan was, which was to uh, downcast the white race, and uh, they didn't want them having all these anthems that they could rally around. Sure. Uh, so you know, uh, I would see a band like Guns N' Roses as being uh, puffed up by the record industry uh, to serve as a bridge between hard heavy metal that is virtuosic, and then grunge, which was pretty much the opposite, uh, which which lacked any virtuosity, and it uh, really was a depressing, downcast music. Uh, so Guns N' Roses was promoted as as that bridge to. Uh, bring people that had some talent but not that much uh, on board, and, and the band was just flat-out sloppy. Uh, yeah, they were kind of like, at best, a pre-shout-at-the-devil version of Motley Crue. Right, right. At best. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, Slash, you know, for, for <laughs> some of the you know okay things he played, he, he was far sloppier than any of the, the Shrapnel Records, uh, you know, talent that were out there that day who, <laughs> you know they had clean picking techniques and uh i mean let's face it uh they they just were sloppy and uh so that really paved the way for people then to accept the next downgrade which was uh the the grunge scene sure i think too with um guns and roses the way they behaved on that tour with metallica that it was just reprehensible if Metallica was opening on a particular night. And I think they swapped who opened and who didn't. But if Metallica opened and played their set, then Guns N' Roses would wait two hours to right. come out and play theirs. Just reprehensible behavior. And that generally, no matter how be ill-behaved metal bands were and hard rock bands were in their private lives, when it came to putting on concerts, they were all business. That's right. Yep. Even though they were trash, you know, like Alex Van Halen, you know, I mean, he would play drunk almost all the time, but still he was going to be able to play. Right. And they started on time, and they gave you their full set, whereas with Axl Rose, he'd pay four songs, and if he didn't think the crowd was enthusiastic enough, they'd just walk off, yep. and that was it. So they set really a lot of new low standards in the music world, not only just in their music itself, but also, um, and also their personal behavior. I mean, they were one of the, you know, most debauched bands around, but also in the way they uh, treated fans at the concerts. I, I cannot believe they still have as many loyal fans as they do today, because I was completely put off by um, their behavior during that Metallica tour. Yeah, they, they were atrocious, uh, to say the least. And, uh, you know, the, I think a lot of it's because the, the fans of heavy metal saw them as metal, and they still had that loyalty. Uh, and so they were still willing to give that loyalty even when a band wasn't worthy of that loyalty. Right. And uh, so, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses, they went they went by the wayside, you know. I mean, I know they've done a few reunion shows, but uh, Slash and Axel, you know, they parted their ways for a long time. <laughs> And because, you know, people like that with such huge egos and destructive character, they can't stand to be around one another. That's right. Even though that band was a money machine, as you point out before, mainly for the record label, at least right. in the early years of it. Uh, but they still couldn't get back together or work together because they were usually strung out on heroin or right. drugs or what have you. That's what the song Mr. Brownstone is about. <laughs> yes, it is. 
Or you look at like the lyrics of Paradise City. I mean, you'll probably in some ways, you know, Motley Crue might even said, "Hey, I think you guys ought to tone it down a little bit." <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's an interesting story in, in Dave Mustang's autobiography that he said that you know when he was living really hard, that it was Alice Cooper was the first person that ever gave him some advice and said, "You know, boy, you need to, you know, you're you're going to destroy yourself the way you're living." Mm-hmm. And he said he, you know, in retrospect, he really looked, you know, respected Alice Cooper for telling him that, and kind of looked to him as a kind of a godfather of sorts, right? That you know set a moral example for him. Yeah, and Alice learned that the hard way. He, he had yeah, he did, <laughs> he did. And you know, you know, we've you know, talked a good bit now about the good, and now I guess we ought to you know get on to somewhat to some of the bad parts of of metal as well. Uh, to me, the you know, probably the major problems have been lyrics by a lot of bands that are focused on fornication or humanistic lyrics about believing in yourself, and you know, to some the less a little bit of a lesser extent about partying and drug use, as you were saying, you know, like Mr. Brownstone from uh, from Guns N' Roses or from Black Sabbath, say Sweet Leaf or Snowblind, which those were about you know marijuana use and cocaine, respectively. Right. But you know these are things that you see in a lot of um, you know in a lot of people that are on TV who are actors in country music. Uh, this is not behavior. You know, while it's bad behavior, it's not and bad lyrics. It's not at all you know to say that unusual. You listen to country music songs, and <clears throat> much of that's about you know, being on your fifth wife and getting drunk all the time, and you know having low expectations. So I really wouldn't say that. <laughs> you know that country music was any better, and and really now, you know, pop music is, generally speaking, has gone past a lot of the lyrical, the bad lyrical standards of the '80s for hard rock bands, and it's gone much worse than that. Right. Um, then you have you know bands which we're not even really referring to here. I consider black or dark metal um, or death metal com- a completely different genre, but those those bands obviously do sing a lot about um, the occult and. Uh, just you know, horrifying aspects of of life in this world. There was on occasion in some of the big acts we listened to in the eighties, uh, bands that, that dealt with occult type subjects. Uh, there was a Wasp song, "Sleeping in the Fire," uh, that was one of them. Um, there was another tune you mentioned, I think earlier, uh, the Ingve song where he was talking about you know, power from above, power from below. How do you how did that go? Yeah, as above, so below. Which below, is, uh, yes. Which is a well-known uh, phrase among <clears throat> Satanists and Luciferians. Right. Uh, um, that came, I believe, from Aleister Crowley. And, that sounds correct. Yeah. So, generally, but generally speaking, that was the exception and not really, uh, not really the rule. Even a band uh, like Motley Crue, "Shout at the Devil." Their, I consider it their best album. Mm-hmm. That the original album cover was a big pentagram, inverted pentagram inside of a circle, which got changed pretty shortly thereafter to four individual pictures of the band's members. But they, uh, Nicky Six had started um, doing research for the lyrics on that band. He was reading a lot of occult books. It's pretty well known, and he he wrote this piece, I think, which he intended to be ominous. There's an intro called "In the Beginning," before they the song "Shout the Devil." I don't know, you know what happened, but Nikki Six kind of dropped the ball on it because it really didn't really come out that ominous at all. But right. uh, towards the end of it, the 
the narrators exhorting the people. So stand tall, you children of the beast. Stand stand tall and shout at the devil. You know, if it had gone on, you know, 15 more seconds, it would have been exhorting them to put on the whole armor of God. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that was the intention of what Nikki Six had had done, but, I mean, you know, that's the way it came out. So... (laughs) <laughs> well, he didn't have complete control over what he was attempting to do because he was strung out on heroin all the time, so he probably didn't put in a full effort on it. Yeah, he he wasn't so bad yet that a paramedic had to kickstart his heart with, uh, <laughs> with a <laughs> yeah with a shot of, of a, a syringe of adrenaline, right? But he he would definitely was strung out. There was a, an account that uh, was pretty interesting. I think it was either a, pro, a producer or a sound engineer that was working with Motley Crue on that album. That he went over to Nikki Six's apartment, and he had some girl that was living with him, and he enters the apartment and and sits down with them, and notes that Nikki Six is in this very depressed state, which he wasn't in in the studio, and uh, and then cabinet doors start opening and closing, and and knives from the kitchen start flying across the air and embedding themselves in the wall, and. Uh, the guy says, "Well, you know, I, I got to go." <laughs> but supposedly, Nikki Six. After that, he got rid of at least some of the worst of the occultic material he had. He he kept a good bit of it too, but he got rid of some of the worst of the material, and that kind of problem stopped. So, you know, that was a clear example of demonic oppression yes. uh, coming from the via the ownership of corrupted occult um, occult books. And he, you know, he was smart to get rid of him, even though it obviously you know, he's he's not a regenerate man by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Right. Then, yeah, that would be an example, though, of I think of some of the or at least the cult background that you saw in some of the metal bands. There's another instance of, um, say, with Ronnie James Dio, that when he was with the first big act he was with was Richie Blackmore and his Rainbow uh, right. Group. After Richie Blackmore had left Deep Purple, and I think it was either making their, I think it was making their second album. They were recording it in France, and they had a séance, and started having this demon that was harassing them. After that, and one time, in, in Dio's own words, he said that the demon shoved Wendy Dio, Ronnie James's wife, down the stairs. And uh, but that was about the most harmful thing. A lot of it was this demon messing with their recording sessions. And finally, the demon left them. But then it reappeared again. He said that he participated in a seance um, shortly after Holy Diver came out in 83, and they were about to perform a, a concert in 1983 in Los Angeles. And this Dio came back, and uh, the same demon came back, and, and he says, hey, Ronnie, look who's back. And Ronnie said, no, no, you're not. And he said, you know, from that day on, he didn't do any more um, seances. That Dio, his religious views, that he was raised Roman Catholic, and, and obviously had a huge amount of animosity towards the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but his views on Christianity in general, um, in one really in-depth interview I read of him on the subject, he, he came across sound kind of like a United Methodist pastor. <laughs> Whereas, like, you know, he believed that Jesus Christ was a was like a, a great leader, and, right. uh, you know, and a great prophet, uh, that he held to a lot of the morality, he said, of, of Christianity, but Towards the end of his life, if you looked at at his band, three of the five members of Dio were open professing Christians. 
Craig Goldie, most notably among them, right. who was the guitarist, and then Rudy Sarzo, the bass player who'd formerly been, I think, in Quiet Riot. That's correct. But and also Ozzy. Ozzy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, very well known for, I think, Diary of a Madman right. um, album. So, and Rudy Sarzo is very open about his beliefs on that subject. And then the keyboardist, too, um, was an open believer, and I, I can't think remember his name, but the keyboardist did say that um, towards the end of his life that Dio, you know, got over his anger with God mm-hmm. and, you know, sought for forgiveness from Jesus Christ for his sins. So you could imagine a band that has three out of five members in it they are open Christians. Generally, there's not some satanic angle that's being worked there. Right, right. And lyrically, generally, Dio's material was not that bad. Um, the worst thing with his album covers, I think, were his first two covers. At the first um, album, Holy Diver, the depict has this demonic type entity throwing a Catholic priest uh, chained up into the ocean. And certainly, um, in a theonomic society, we would have to have a lengthy conversation with Mister Dio about that, but. It's something I've long wondered, you know, him being Italian, raised Roman Catholic, and, and uh, you know, part of New York with a lot of Catholics in it. Dio was a pretty young-looking young kid, but yet always kind of diminutive, a little small. And right. you, you wonder, you know, if someone was molested by a priest at that age, would that encourage, you know, lifelong animosity towards the Catholic Church? Well, the corruption, uh, you know, was was already to the hilt even when he was young. Sure. And there's absolutely sure. no doubt he grew up seeing that. So, right. I mean, definitely you're right, though, that uh, being that he was of small stature, he would have been seen as easy pickings uh, to be a, an altar boy to some pedophilic priest. Uh, so we don't know, for, of course, if that happened or not. But uh, right. he may have seen it, even if it didn't happen to him. He, he right. could have known about it with other, other people or... Uh, you know, he he obviously was an intelligent man, so he could see the hypocrisy, the overwhelming hypocrisy of that church. Yeah, he called the Catholic Church once. I, I remember him saying, it, "You know, it's a business, is what it is." And he's right. And, and he's right, right. Uh, it wasn't like he was trashing Protestantism or anything else. It always when he talked about the church, it was always the Roman Catholic Church that he right. was targeting, and he he thought it was a you know bad entity, which it which it is. He's correct. <laughs> um, some of the garbage you saw that come from, you know, like all the satanic panic of the seventies, where the fundamentalists would start saying things like, "Oh well, uh, Kiss stands for Night and Satan Service," or ACDC stood for Antichrist, Devil Child, or, or WASP worships all Satan's people, and I mean, these these were just. I mean, it was bearing false witness, is what it was. Right. Yeah, there was plenty to have criticized all those bands about, and you really didn't have to look very hard to do it. Um, you just you know, just listen to their lyrics. You know, you, there's a lot there to object to, but um, you know, none of those foregoing examples were true. It was just you were dealing with youth group top leaders, and they wanted something shocking to tell the kids. And no, there was never a bit of truth in any of that. Yeah, Iron Maiden was another uh, band that was targeted uh, for saying, you know, well, they were devil worshipers. And yet, uh, during their, what was the name of that? Live After Death. Oh, that's it was, right, yeah. yeah. 
in their video for that, uh, Bruce Dickinson stands on the stage and says, you know, we are not Satanists, we never have been, and none of our music is intended to be that way. Now, obviously, they didn't do themselves any favors from the album cover for uh, Number of the Beast. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one thing, you know, they were seeking shock value, and they got it. They got more than they bargained for. Um, there is, I think, kind of a, an in- intelligent way you can look at that, that like their Seventh Son of a Seventh Son album, which came out uh, about five years later, the Number of the Beast was overall, uh, my opinion, and, and there's a guy who wrote a lengthy comment about it, that it was a, a concept album, and each song revealed how the beast revealed itself to mankind. And uh, I won't go through all the points here. I mean, you, people want to look online, they can find uh, that written up comment. I think it's on the YouTube for uh, the number of the beast album itself. But once again, people are just taking something on face value and not looking a little bit further into it. You saw, say, like with. Ozzy Osbourne's song, Suicide Solution. Now, that's one of the worst examples of of someone having being, having false witness born against them. Right. But the whole song was about Ozzy when he was an alcoholic, drinking himself to death. And lyrically, you can tell the whole song is really just about you know <laughs> alcohol poisoning. And yet it became this song that was supposed to be encouraging uh, people to kill themselves. And it was nothing like that at all. Yeah, another one sued over that, didn't he? Oh uh, yeah, I think at least once, because yeah. parents, you know, that they put their kids in public schools, and uh, they kill themselves because of a lack of a religious upbringing in public school environment. And they're looking for someone to blame, right. instead of blaming themselves. They say, "Oh, well, it was the music you listened to." Right. Yeah, you know, Ozzy's got deep pockets. We know some Jew lawyer that'll sue him for us, and you get your lawsuit game on. Uh, I think he won that case, but still, I mean, obviously it was a lot of money and a lot of time out of his life. Metallica had a song called Leper Messiah. Once again, face value, always saying that, you know, Christ is a leper. No, that was, he wouldn't even examine the lyrics and see that it was about the televangelist. And there was a huge televangelist scandal that took place in the mid-80s with Jimmy Swaggart and the uh, couple who were in charge of the PTO network. Um, yeah, PTL. Mm-hmm. PTL, yes, thank you. Uh, the Bakers, yeah. Uh, right. Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker. With all the and Jimmy Swaggart had been a very vocal opponent of of hard rock and heavy metal, and so when <laughs> you know when he got caught with his pants down, not just once but twice with prostitutes in New Orleans, well, of course, you know, uh, people were going to capitalize off of it. And the Leper Messiah song, there's there's nothing remotely blasphemous about it. That's what it's about. Uh, there's an Ozzy Osbourne song, uh, Miracle Man, same thing. And if you watch the video for it, uh, I think Ozzy even dresses up like Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> I've of seen it. that. <laughs> it's a good video. It is. Yeah. Uh, I think the the last you know kind of example of just people losing their mind uh, over things without even remotely researching it is the album cover for Rush's. 1976 album 2112 and it has a kind of a not a silhouette but just kind of a you know, simply drawn man standing in front of this red star and the the fundy types would say oh well that was you know that's a red you know that's a pentagram it's devil worship <laughs> neil pert explained it you know that's the red star that represents collectivism you know like the soviet union used a red star for their you know primary symbols on aircraft and 
other objects where they couldn't put in a hammer and sickle. And the British media, ironically enough, took a completely opposite view that they knew that Neil Peart was the lyricist that was big into Ayn Rand, so they started saying that Rush was this, you know, pro-fascist uh, band that was wanting to, you know, reestablish fascism. And you know, hey, look at twenty-one twelve—they're mocking, they're mocking socialism. So, <laughs> you, you know, they kind of got it right. But you know, Neil Peart said, "Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fascist. You know, I believe in individualism. <laughs> you know, which obviously is doesn't fit at home in <clears throat> in fascism." So that was an example of where both the liberal media got it wrong and the fundies got it wrong. Right. Yeah, they couldn't uh, couldn't do anything right for the critics. No, they couldn't. I, I you know, and I actually like that album cover. I think it, it, the song itself, twenty one twelve, is about you know, kind of a you know, a mega god state that has suppressed its population for a long time. Right. Uh, good tune and good album. Yeah, and uh, so they had that uh, star on there, and uh, then you had Motley Crue, you know, uh, with their pentagram on their album cover you mentioned as well. Sure, and, you know, like every... People were right to be um, alarmed or angry about that, but then, of course, in almost every town there's a Masonic Lodge, and what does every Masonic Lodge have in front of it? Yep. You know, a pentagram on on its sign, and it's very clearly that's what it's about. As a matter of fact, the... The Hanover Presbytery, which people in our circle, some of them will be familiar with, you know, Joe Moorcraft, after he just got run out of the denomination, he started, joined the Hanover Presbytery. Uh, Brian Abshire and Richard Bacon are also a couple of members of it. Well, the founder of the Hanover Presbytery was a fanatical, fanatical Freemason. He was up to his eyeballs. This wasn't a man that just, you stopped the third degree and attended a meeting once a month. No, he was a fanatical Mason. And yet they won't speak out against, you know, the people in the Hanover Presbytery don't say, oh, this was terrible, you know, we must admire the good things about the man's life, but he was clearly an error here. No, they won't say that. Or you look at the founding of the PCA in the early 70s, there was a drive to have an anti-Masonic resolution passed then. And even though it was a breakaway Presbyterian startup, they could, there was... A, enough opposition uh, or enough pro-Freemasonry opposition that that resolution would not get passed. So you have the typical hypocrisy again, like, oh, the pentagram on a Motley Crue album is bad, but a pentagram at the Masonic Lodge is okay, or, you know, or a pro-Mason, you know, Presbyterian is okay. So, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Judge by the same standard. Uh, right, right. And these people aren't judging by the same standard. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, everybody knows uh, who's even had a minor introduction to conspiracy that the Masons are uh, heavily Luciferian and very much involved in uh, the evils that we see in this world. So uh, it doesn't take much research or much, you know, really intelligence on the subject to know that that needs to be one of the first things that, that you... Uh, disavow in your church. So I'm sure. actually shocked, you know, that the PCA weren't able to get that passed. And uh, I would have to say it's because there were, from the very inception, infiltrators. And we see right. the fruits of that right now. 
Right. There's a mutual acquaintance of ours who lives in Michigan who used to live in South Carolina who said that, you know, Masons were thick as thieves in Presbyterian circles in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. Uh, when he was there. And, of course, the, uh, among the Southern Baptists, their numbers were uh, of pandemic proportions in the 80s. That oh, that's true, it, yes. It was estimated that roughly 25% of Southern Baptist pastors and about the same number of men in the congregations were Freemasons. Yep. So no, no anti-Masonic movement was ever going to thrive there. A lot of the opposition to metal, uh, it would at least be refreshing if people would exercise the same standards in judging it um, as they do in other things. Pop music or, or chart music now has... It, it, to me, it's probably the, the worst form of music that a lot of people listen to. The black metal and death metal are, are relatively still kind of obscure. Uh, like Madonna, though, you know, that's a huge name. You know that the um, I can't remember her Italian name. She's from Michigan, really originally, but yeah, Madonna. Like that. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, she sold millions and millions of albums, but she is a, an absolutely horrendous, wicked woman. Um, offered or, to perform oral sex on men who voted for Hillary. She's in a you know Kabbalah uh, study group, and then the super, you know the, she had a huge occult Super Bowl show, the 2012 Super Bowl. That was a Super Bowl 46. Mm-hmm. Vigilant Citizen has a great rundown of Madonna's uh, cult laden Super, Super Bowl halftime show, and that was the 2012 Super Bowl. Uh, that's Vigilant Citizen, a great website that deals with a lot of occult symbolism that can be easy to miss. In addition to her, you had Michael Jackson, who I think everyone by now knows that he was a child molester, Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, uh, Rihanna, Britney Spears, George Michael—that's going back into the '80s again. He was—he was gay. Boy George wasn't Boy George gay as well. As, oh yes, oh yes. In he, the uh, he was a uh, sodomite and also a heroin addict. And, oh, okay. I didn't know about the latter. And, and it's worth mentioning also that uh, Katy Perry, My, Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Britney Spears—they are all uh, mind controlled as well. They are all uh, victims of satanic ritual abuse, mind control. Otherwise, uh, was known as MK Ultra. Sure. Uh, and so they are used by their handlers to do nothing but spread the Luciferian gospel. Um, but then that's the same thing that they did with the homosexuals, George Michael and Boy George. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so you know the the point being that they make sure that uh, they have under their thumb whoever they promote these days so that they can be sure that the message is exactly what they want it to be. Sure. Unlike metal. <laughs> and someone like Britney Spears obviously isn't working with a lot of intellect upstairs anyway. Right. And so very easy to impress and manipulate. Um, like, here, sing this, act this way. Uh, Jay-Z, another huge, well-known, popular inter- entertainer, that he actually was a consort with Marina uh, Abramovic, um, who's was a I don't know if you would call her a priestess, but she was obviously involved with spirit cooking and the whole satan- uh, pizza Satanism, being tied with John Podesta and Hillary Clinton and that big pedophile ring. Yeah, that's so right. you can't really get much more uh, occultic than Marina Abramovic. 
Yeah, and she, yet she was. Yeah, she's a priestess and a witch. And uh, now Jay Z is also in the Illuminati, and he is Beyonce's handler. She is also a mind-controlled slave, and uh, Jay Z fulfills the role of her handler. Uh, I can't believe I left left her off of here. Yeah, Beyonce should definitely be on that list. But uh, you know, Jay Z, he uh, he, everything that you can study about him proves that that he's part of the club. And, it uh, does, yeah. His whole thing, like he, you know, covering up his eye, you know, one exactly. eye, or using the you know circle for his hand. That's right. Uh, you know the symbolism there. There, yeah, I just mentioned Vigilant Citizen, and there's another great Vigilant Citizen article called Top Ten Illuminati Artists: right. uh, Madonna, Beyonce, Katy Perry, and of course it goes on from that. That's right. I mean, these are you know horrible, horrible people, and uh, you know much worse than. You know anyone with Kiss or you know Ozzy or Rush, but since they're popular, they're considered okay. And I think there's a growing realization that our side lost the culture war, so anything that's popular is deemed okay now. Right. But where you can still rip on something that's that's not popular. So if the Super Bowl can have an occultic halftime show, that's okay. If the Freemasons want to have pentagrams in front of their lodges, that's okay. But if you want to have music that's a little bit off the beaten path, then that's not okay. Right. Yeah, this uh, chart music is far more overtly satanic Mm -hmm. than anything ever in metal, and it lacks any of the musical quality that metal (laughs) gave. And uh, so, you know, back in the 80s particularly, there were a lot of books that were written, I know because I read a couple of them, uh, that tried to point out the Satanism in rock music and that Christians should not listen to it. But I haven't seen a single book written on this chart music stuff, have you? No, no, not at all. It's, it's uh, some people on websites, and a lot of it's even like, you know, teenagers who are kind of savvy to what's going on with it that are making comments, but nothing big at all. No, there's no right. real movement against it. Right. Oh, time for another great quote on that line. Um the 80s was the last great decade of variety, whereas the 90s, 90s music was all just angst, misery, depression, gloom, and doom, and that's probably why it never took hold with me. They call it the Seattle sound. Well, I've been to Seattle, and that place is a cesspool. If you think music coming out of Seattle was bad back then, it really sucks now. <laughs> uh, I remember one one. Uh, comment from a guy who was about 17 or 18 in his his own words and he was trying to get his 12 year old sister interested in megadeth and metal because he was alarmed because she was listening to chart music and he, which he he described in his own words as is evil incarnate mm-hmm. and was enough about nothing more than fornication and drugs yeah i'm sure that would blow the minds of a lot of the uh, religious critics of metal, but here was a metal fan who was worried about the spiritual welfare of his sister, right. who was listening to popular music, who which he considered to be very evil. Right, and just, people are not looking into it. You know, there's an album I think you pointed out pretty recently, uh, Super Tramp. Right, right. That has the 9/11 imagery uh, on its cover, and that was an album that came out in 1979. That's correct. And it kind of reflects, I think, the, the the greater 
occultic psychosphere that runs loose of where I don't think the <clears throat> the players for for um, Super Tramp knew of that event, but where you have a, an occultic atmosphere and where Satan kind of puts in these little clues to mock people, like, yeah, this is happening, we know, or maybe, you know, the more insider elements of it know. I, I've never seen, obviously, anything um, written about Super Tramp in any of the, uh, like any of the religious books that you were mentioning that were written in the 80s about metal. Another good example is um, not music-wise, but it's Back to the Future, the, the Back to the Future movies. And in the first movie, there is this huge number of references to the assassination of John F. Kennedy yes, in it. Yes. And in fact, there's a store in the central square of Hill Valley that has a a, a bust of JFK. And there's a great YouTube uh, on the subject of just if, if you listeners will put in Back to the Future, JFK assassination, it'll pop up immediately. But once more, this predictive uh, revelation of the method that you see with occult, the occult psychosphere. There was a couple other um, big occultic celebrations that received scant attention from conservative Christians. The uh, post-Super Bowl um, 45 show that was a that was a very big um, last year's World Rugby Series in London, the opening of the uh, of the Swiss Railroad Tunnel. I think that was also another another um, event. Mm-hmm. The 2012 Olympic Games in London. The Henry Macau site has a good write up uh, called Olympics Blatant Occultism, yes. which I believe deals with the 2012 Olympic Games. Vigilant Citizen again deals with the. Uh, cultic symbolism of the 2012 games, the 2015 it was the 2015 London World Rugby Cup uh, that you could find entirety uh, on YouTube. Amazing occult imagery involved in that. We've already mentioned the Super Bowl 46 with Madonna, and then the 26 Olympics opening ceremony as well too, which you can find that on YouTube. Right, right. Yeah, these things are also uh, very well exposed on the Vigilant Citizen site. They've uh, done articles on, I think, almost all of these that you've mentioned. And the guy that that does that site has uh, done a lot of research and study on occultism, so he knows what he's talking about. He does. He's he's uh, an expert in that area, and he points out things that the average person would just never even notice. Uh, very highly recommended site. He's done a couple of, uh, several reviews on movies that I really love. His three-part series on Stanley Kubrick's last movie, Eyes Wide Shut. There was another movie that came out, I believe, in 2014 or 2015 called Prisoners. Mm -hmm. A tremendous write-up on that. And then there was an HBO series, the first uh, season of, True Detective is the name of the series, but the first season... He's written a lengthy review of that. That was a tremendous season that dealt with uh, the occult in southern Louisiana. And great reviews on all those. Yeah, that uh, particularly the Eyes Wide Shut is uh, Kubrick exposing a whole lot of the satanic agenda and uh, basically how they live their lives. Um, And it is a very highly recommended piece to read. Um, a, a lot of people uh, don't know that he himself was a member of the Illuminati, 
and uh, had significant input into what they were doing, uh, even to the point of being uh, highly considered involved in the fake moon landings. Right, yeah. I'm one of those that believes he, he probably shot the footage or at least gave significant directorial oversight on it. That's right. And uh, there's also uh, research that has been done uh, to suggest that uh, you know he he was involved in doing that in a studio that existed in the Laurel Canyon area of California, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was completely funded by the government. Uh, Dave McGowan did a lot of good research on that uh, and his highly recommended work. But I guess we probably ought to get back to talking about metal at this point. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, you know, you'd mentioned about White Snakes. Uh, Still the Night video earlier. And, right, right. Yeah, which came out in 1987. And, and to a lot of people, they would say, with some degree of um, being truthfulness, in it, it was highly <clears throat> sexually provocative, but of course it doesn't really show anything. There's a... You know, if you're going to have a healthy society that opposes fornication and homosexuality... Uh, there's certain things you would see in that society, whereas like in the 1950s, you had kind of this prudish culture that didn't talk about fornication, didn't talk about homosexuality, even those things went on, but no one would ever dare talk about them. I, I would think that you know, Eddie Murphy's 1983 stand-up uh, comedy, Parents Delirious, where he talks about homosexuals at the beginning of it in a uh, very humorous way, had a lot to do with you know deterring homosexuality in, in amongst younger people that were considering it. And by the same token, you know, I look at the Still of the Night video now, and, you know, I mean, it's highly, highly heterosexual, but, you know, the feminist would hate it. And, it, you know, it's a celebration of heterosexuality in, in, in many respects that I think that if you have a society that's going to stand against some of the worst things uh, of man in terms of sexual perversion, there also needs to be the ability to at least celebrate uh, you know the human form without going into a perverted sense and right I, I going back to singing about the Erie Canal or the wishy-washy washerwoman you know isn't going to get it cut now I think what happened in the late 60s in many ways was a was a reaction to what was going on in the 40s and 50s of what well, we're just going to keep all this under wraps we're going to pretend like it isn't going on now you know we have an explosion in homosexuality or sodomy because of the unwillingness of people to address it. And I would much rather people be watching white snake videos that have a, you know, oversexed model in it and yet know about the evils of fornication than trying to, you know, protect them by just acting like it doesn't exist. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, I almost think that David Coverdale is being a bit prophetic because at the end of that video, he's uh, arrested by the sex police and <laughs> right. you know, thrown into this van. And like, well, now the way the homosexual movement is growing and the way the feminist movement is growing, like, well, I could. <laughs> that almost seems like that could be reality in five years. Like, oh, you like women? Well, let's let's lock you up yeah, then. And it's heading toward. Uh... Like you mentioned in the past, it was forbidden to even mention the uh, the perversion side of it. Mm-hmm. In the future, it would be, you know, possibly the other way around. Right. <laughs> I think mean, you know the you know speaking of the feminists, the matriarchy uh, in particular, they always hated heavy metal. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
you know, chicks just railed against it. In my high school, and I suspect it was like pretty much every other high school in the country, that amongst the ruling clique, that it was expected if you were going to be able to go out with one of the girls from the ruling clique, you, you couldn't listen to metal. Right. And uh, the feminists, they've always they wanted every male stronghold torn down. They wanted to be able to participate in it. So something like NFL football, which neither one of us has any you know major use for, uh, chicks eventually with time kind of infiltrated that in, in terms of... Uh, being announcers or interviewers, and a lot of women now you know, watch NFL games and follow it. But with heavy metal, they weren't interested in doing that. They were so they were just you know simply tried to destroy it and by encouraging, uh, well, shunning men, men who listened to it or being a part of movements that were tried to uh, overtly try to uh, make metal music hard to listen to. Right. We're going to go over country music. Yes, the virtuous music that kids can, you know, good homeschool kids can listen to that'll keep their souls safe. Um, to me, it's a music that represents the sin of simplicity and a, a revolt against maturity. Uh, it requires almost no you know, mu- uh, instrumental talent at all, and it's kind of you see in a, a lot of really like backwards Baptist circles or evangelical hymns. That's it's kind of a revolt against maturity. That is what most country music strikes me as. I don't want to condemn all, but some of it I think does kind of represent a good folklore type tradition. But uh, by and large, most of it's performed by posers who grew up in suburbs and you know never even went anywhere near a ranch. They just you know they have their costumes they put on. Right. Their ten gallon hats, their leather vest. And it's every bit as much of a costume as what you would see uh, someone wearing a heavy in a heavy metal band. The well, country to me, the affected accent that they uh, portray in the songs. Oh my gosh, yeah, or how they speak so slowly and with a bigger drawl. Yeah, yeah Alan Jackson to me is one you know one of the worst offenders on that front. Although, you know, not he's certainly not the only one. Right. The country, to me, is something, a recurring theme that I've heard in country for years is an obsession with what I call little man wisdom. The idea that, you know, the little people or the, you know, the cab driver or the barber, you know, that they, they've got the world figured out. And if we would only listen to them and not these guys that read all these books and are making things so much more complex that everything is just really simple, if that's something that you see a lot in country music, and it's it's driven by envy. Yeah, I've got a relative in East Texas that uh, I would say he, you know his, he's a lot of his life has been poisoned by envy, and he's you know not surprisingly you know, into some of the the country music <laughs> songs because it attracts people who are very much they have this envy problem in them. Mm-hmm. It's a very anti-intellectual. It's focused on drunkenness misery, divorce, and just general mediocrity, which is fitting since, you know, instrumentally it is very mediocre music. And then there's the whole patriotard angle that you see in country music. Toby Keith's post-9-11 hit, The Angry American, is very much, you know, typical of a lot of what you see coming out of country music. Now, outlaw country, 
I think Merle Haggard was considered the leading luminary of outlaw country. That would have been, you know, not nowhere near as jingoistic as what you see today. But uh, also, Alan Jackson, his uh, nine, big 9-11 song, um, Where Were You When the uh, when the Towers Were Burning? Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But very much a, you know, a jingoistic song intended for people who... Who who are patriotards? Right. There's a a, a fellow acquaintance of ours, uh, Colby Malsbury. He's written an article over a uh, website called Faith and Heritage, entitled "Honky Tonk Heathenism: <laughs> Annie Kenneth Themes in Post-War Country Music." That I think to me, you know, helps take a little bit of the whole uh, virtuous ideas of country music and takes it off. He's very well versed in that genre of music. And there's actually a good bit of heavy metal that he likes as well, too. So he's a good authority on the subject. Also, it's another genre that has a lot, uh, in some regards, I think, with a lot in common with country music is contemporary Christian music. Right. Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, once again, very instrumentally not complex at all. If someone who studied the guitar for, for probably maybe 10 hours a day for a year could probably play every Amy Grant song ever oh, yeah, done. Definitely. And, and, and same for piano or keyboards. It's just it's easy, easy stuff to do. Lyrically simplistic, instrumentally in, uh, simplistic. And it goes above board in trying to manipulate its listeners into achieving some sort of emotional state. <clears throat> You think of the rich tradition that uh, the Christian church has, particularly, say, with pop organs, but with the hymns written by Bach, and now we're being reduced to this happy, clappy, contemporary Christian music, and it it's indicative of how bad of shape the church is today. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and you see it within the church with the replacement of classic hymns with praise choruses. Yeah, I mean, how did it get this bad to this point? Right, and uh, it, standards have been lowered in, in every area. And, uh, you know, the contemporary Christian music is headquartered in the same place as the country music. It's Nashville. <laughs> and the same record labels own both, and they have subsidiary labels like Word Records that are owned by, you know, the, the higher-level labels that uh, run the country music business. And so uh, it's all just product to them. And, uh, I hadn't thought of that, but I mean, the, the, the irony is so thick you could cut it with a knife. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's it's just a business, and they don't expect that the people they sign to necessarily have any uh, genuine belief, just so long as they're willing to play the role. Amy Grant, uh, not to rip on her, but there's a this view that those people are also wholesome, yet Amy Grant's very pro-fag obviously had an adulterous affair uh, mm-hmm. with Vince uh, Gill. Is that his name? That's it. Uh, and then there's other, lot, uh, there's several contemporary Christian groups in which the male members of that have, have gone fag. Right. Well, I'm surprised they weren't fags from the beginning. <laughs> I mean, you almost have to be a sodomite to like any of that music. I'm not surprised that gays are attracted to Amy Grant's music. It has a... Uh, it's charismatic I, music. Emotionally, yeah, uh, sure. To them. And it's very effeminate. Yes, 
very effeminate music. The men who like that tend to be very effeminate. So if they haven't gone gay yet, they <laughs> may be in danger of going gay. So don't throw away your, your Kiss albums, guys. Get rid of those contemporary Christian mouths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, there was a, uh, an attempt in the Christian music industry to try and uh, replicate some of the metal bands at some point. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I tried to give them a chance. You know, there are bands like uh, White Cross. Uh, I know there's another band called White Cross that's a little different than the metal band I'm talking about called White mm-hmm. Cross. Uh, White Cross had an album called Hammer and Nail. Actually, wasn't a bad record. I mean, the guitar sounded like Eddie Van Halen. The singer sounded just like uh, Stephen Piercy from Rat. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it was, once again, nothing original, and it was trying to do a, a Jesus version of the real thing, and it, and it ended up being very f- unfulfilling and uh, disappointing. Uh, rather than making uh, you know Christian music better, it just made it look worse. That's a, a great line you were channeling there from uh, the King of the Hill episode in which Bobby Hill gets caught up in some contemporary Christian band. And um, Hank Hill, Bobby's father, says, "You're not making rock. You're not making Christian music. Any basically what you just said. You're not making it better. You're just making it worse." Right. <laughs> and that was the episode in which Gene Simmons starred in. Oh wow! As as the father of the uh, contemporary Christian rocker, and he you know kind of gets him back on the straight and narrow path. <laughs> it was a, it was a hilarious episode. Great rebuke of that kind of that kind of music. That's great. Yeah, and uh, there was an episode of uh, South Park that was similar where Eric Cartman went into the contemporary Christian music field because he knew yep. there was money to be made, and so he wrote these sappy songs that sounded like he was singing to a, a female, uh, you know, and then instead inserted the name Jesus, you know, and uh, it was a big hit. <laughs> yeah, that was a great, great episode. Yeah, he bet uh, bet Kyle and, and Stan that he could sell a million records before they would, and he just, you know, wrote these just, you know, overly sentimental, sappy songs. And, <laughs> um, it, some of the, the titles on those songs are just shocking. Uh, yep. Um, you know, like, Jesus, you know, Jesus, 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 just turn out the lights. You know, right. that was that was one of Eric Cartman's songs. Um, obviously, somewhat sexually provocative. Like, you shouldn't think of Christ that way. Or there's another classification called uh, Jesus is my boyfriend music. Oh yes, yes. And there's a lot of that that goes around. Uh, some of your you have this poisonous, um, I don't know what you call her, evangelist, a theologian, or heretic, definitely the latter, named Beth Moore. Mm-hmm. And see, she seems to push a lot of that theology of, of Jesus as my boyfriend. Well, there's also a music that fits that kind of theology, too. Right. I don't see how any man really sings that, but it's, it's a big, big hit with a lot of chicks. You go to any of these big box churches, you'll hear tunes like that being sung. Yeah, it uh, appeals to the emotions, and that's what you got to do. Right. Yeah, that's a fact. Uh, just a few other things, you know, to throw out to the listeners there that, you know, back in the 80s, uh, heavy metal actually had a pretty big presence at the newsstand that we had uh, magazines that were kind of the equivalent of People right. or U.S. Weekly, although not as sleazy as that. But if you wanted to, 
you know, know what your favorite rock stars were doing, you know, what tours they were doing, you know, album releases. Uh, there were magazines like Hit Parader and Circus, both of which I liked. Another one called Cream that actually had some pop music focus as well. And then you had Guitar for the Practicing Musician, which that was a very classy uh, publication, very PG rated in the kind of interviews they did, but it was focused entirely on the the music aspect of it. And not yeah, I was really... a long-time subscriber to that magazine in the 80s. That was a, just a fantastic publication. I bought numerous issues of it myself. And it was uh, about you know encouraging mutual, musical virtuosity in people. That's right. And, unfortunately, you know, the, the <clears throat> I, there's a following, I think. Guitar for the Practicing Musician is no longer around, is it? No, no. It shut, shuttered up about uh, 92, 93, I think. And then uh, Guitar World came uh-huh. being. And uh, I think there are a couple of other ones, too that have started since then. But, you know, they don't cover the the same thing that Guitar Practicing Musician did because back in the 80s we had this incredible scene with all these virtuosos and they would cover them. Uh, but then grunge destroyed all that and the people they have in there now are uh, just nowhere near the same talent. Yeah, and yeah, the another good thing about that guitar magazine in the 80s is that they would cover like jazz and fusion stuff yes, as well too. Yes, that, that's true. Um, that they were, you know, the very highbrow type publication. I wish that it was still around, and even it was kind of nice to have magazines like Hit Parader and Circus. But we do have the internet sources at this point, which for daily updates gives you a lot more. I mean, in some ways, too much information about what's going on. Right. There's sites like Loudwire, Blabbermouth, and Ultimate Classic Rock, and really the way to follow those is on Facebook. Because that's where you get into a lot of the great comment uh, comment wars that go on, whereas you can link to their normal web page if you want to, but the great comment wars take place on their Facebook pages. That kind of shows you, though, I think, again, of the big presence that those bands and that type of music has is, is had. Right. There was a, a fellow out of New York, or actually out of New Jersey, where he was raised, named Eddie Trunk. He was, uh, worked at a musical at a record store, and eventually, with time, uh, he's got a, a radio show now dedicated to a lot of the '80s bands that that we liked, and you know, he's very much into. And then turned that even into a cable TV show called That Metal Show, which was on VH uh, VH1. Unfortunately, it's no longer with us, but he's trying to get that show rebooted, like on HBO or or Showtime. It was a great program, and he has podcasts now that come off of his radio show. There's other people as well. Chris Jericho, a lot of people are familiar with him as a uh, wrestler on uh, the WWE, but he's also a vocalist on a heavy metal band called Fozzie. And he's surprisingly good. Yes, he is. You would expect somebody who is a a big, muscular individual like that to not have much of a singing voice but he's he's actually pretty good and and you know he's he's also his podcast he has some interesting people on it Mm -hmm. that um with good interviews too so he's another source of information you're not going to find anyone at this point that's talking about you having podcasts dedicated to michael jackson and and tears for fears right yeah and uh chris jericho is a big kiss fan huge one yeah so he he's been able to uh 
lived two dreams in his life rather than one. Uh, you know, who could imagine growing up to be a WWE superstar, and who could imagine growing up to be a, a rock star? And he's done both. He was uh, the first guy I ever heard that used the term Cookie Monster vocals. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, an episode of that metal show, and I caught him on there, and he uh, just started trashing a lot of these metalcore, uh, new metal, uh, not no, new metal, but death metal and black metal bands. He said, you know, these bands, they, you know, they threw away uh, metal and, and harmony and, and rhythm in exchange for Cookie Monster vocals. <clears throat> I was like, I haven't heard that term before. I'm going to look that up, and I did. And, Incredibly you know, accurate statement. A very accurate statement. Um, he's got good taste, though, in music. Yep. We've also, you know, there's, we live in an era, a huge number of rock autobiographies that are available, and you and I both have read some. Um, you're not seeing that a lot, again, for the, well, if anyone's done for rap stars, you, you know that there was a ghostwriter who wrote it, since most of those guys probably can't even write. But. And their audience can't read either. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah that was, why would be, what would be the point of writing something like that? Because no one's going to buy it. It goes straight to audiobook. Yep, <laughs> except for a few Jews or um, you know liberal chicks that like uh, like rap rap acts, right. or I guess you could get some of those reformed rappers could read it and find out what they're de- uh, like. Oh man, yeah, we can we can sell uh, Jesus Christ through rap. No, let's <laughs> right. let's not do that. <laughs> I, I guess you know as a, a ending comment. We live in kind of a depressing time musically. That you know, music stores are dying. There, there's not that many around, and that the old, you know, the the music we liked, even the pop music, had its heyday in the '80s. It's going to take something, a major cultural shift, to get a rebirth of where there's musical entrepreneurship again, and a uh, embracing of the old standards, and away from the self-destructive patterns we have now, and. Right. Um, but it's going to take reformation to do that. I don't know when that's on the horizon, but in the meantime, we can keep reliving the good from the past, just like everyone, uh, or I say everyone, I should say people with good taste are still listening to the works of Bach and, and Beethoven. Right, right, right. Well, we can go back and listen to the, the good metal acts from the 70s and the 80s. That's exactly right, and... uh you know, there's still a huge market for those groups because there really hasn't been anything better come out in the meantime. And so those records are still selling, and uh, the, the people still want to hear them, and so that's why these acts can continue to tour. White Snake still out there touring. And, uh, you know, you've got uh, Robert Plant even still touring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deep Purple still touring. I mean, uh, these these bands haven't been relevant to the mainstream in, in decades, but yet... They're selling out concerts, uh, you know, worldwide still. So it's obvious the people are still hungry for good music and uh, real talent. And uh, so I think it's it's there for the taking. If we could get some younger people to to move in that direction, uh, it could be restored. It's a it was definitely a weird time. And you know, when I graduated from high school in 1987, I can tell you, no one was listening to music from the 50s. Right. As a matter of fact, it was only a few odd people like us that were listening to, you know, Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin or old Kiss stuff from the seventies, even. But now I increasingly see more and more signs of of kids who are you know fifteen, sixteen years old that 
you know, they're listening to more 70s and 80s material than they are anything from the 21st century. That's true. <laughs> Very strange time. No one in the mid-80s was listening to music from the 50s or especially the 40s, but now kids today, thanks in large part to the YouTube and the Internet, they can go back and listen to something you know done in 1975 or something done in 85. It's a sign of a decaying culture, but also it's good that we, you know, through the internet, can still have these, you know, the access to what was good back then, and hopefully it will help train a new generation of musicians that will, you know, have a vision for excellence, and and hopefully we'll use the web to to bypass the evil of the record companies. Um, that's who, that's going on as we speak. A lot of independent releases out there these days. Uh, that bypass those Jew record labels so that they don't have to be dictated to and uh, ripped off and uh, they can uh, self-publish and uh, keep expenses down so that the the product is also inexpensive to the consumer and uh, thank the internet for all that. Yeah, I know two cellos is a uh, you know two men that uh, play the cello but they do a lot of music from the 70s and 80s that they do with with cellos and they Got their popularity pretty much from making YouTubes. Yep. So entirely bypass. You know, didn't need radio stations, and they didn't need um, record companies. And the, uh, them from it. The best site I know of for buying any independent music is called CDBaby.com, and uh, pretty much any independent release you could think of is available on that site. Uh, and all genres of music, uh, you can go on there, and and you can find anything that you would imagine. And uh, there's a lot of really, really great players that exist through that forum. Uh, they sell their wares over CD Baby, and uh, they have, have done well with it. And they've completely bypassed the Jew record labels and uh, puts more money in their pocket, puts more money in ours because the, the product's less expensive. It's the wave of the future. I think it is. Um, that was a cancer. The record labels were a cancer that needed to be exorcised. Yep. And the increasing corporate ownership of radio stations is another problem that needs to be fixed, and the Internet is fixing it. That's right. Uh, you can tell already that they're they're running into problems in terms of advertising dollars and, and broadcast radios becoming more irrelevant and Outfits like Last FM or Spotify or Pandora are increasingly taking uh, taking their space. So yep. those in those areas, the future looks very bright. That's right. It's it's all good. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure having you on, and uh, it's uh, a topic that we, as long as we did speak on it, it's not exhausted. Uh, we we could continue to go on because. There's a lot that can be said about this music, uh, but the best way, you know, for it to talk is for the people that are listening to go listen to the music. That's right. Put away your country music albums. Throw away your contemporary Christian music. Burn your rap albums and go and get some good, good hard rock, good heavy metal albums, and keep on rocking. For anybody that's out there that uh, maybe is not as well versed with metal, what would you recommend for maybe the the starters for what they ought to go listen to to get a good dose of heavy metal? For me, as a as a starter, I would appreciate, uh, develop a musical appreciation first. So for me, I would probably say Vinnie, going with Vinnie Moore, uh, Tony McAlpine, uh, 
maybe some of Paul Gilbert's music, or you know, these are just instrumental compositions. Mm-hmm. Listen to that. If you like what you hear, then expand that further. Go back and listen to old Dokken, Rush, nice complex music. Mm. And then if you like that, uh, even go back further to say old Metallica, old um, uh, Iron Maiden from the 80s. Generally speaking, most I think most bands, like most novel writers or or movie creators, after their you know say their first half dozen scripts or albums, that they probably have done their best work in that time frame. Not always, but generally speaking, like you know The Simpsons or South Park, their best episodes were within you know their first eight to ten years. And I think generally any band you're looking at. You're you're going to be safer if you buy act, uh, works that are from the 80s, unless it was a band that started out in the 70s. Then you might want to look at their 70s era works. Kiss, obviously, it's mainly known for what they did in the 70s. Rush, on the other hand, was an act that was around, I think, starting in 74. But I think their best material came out in the 80s. But Generally speaking, I would say shy away from the later releases. And the great thing, of course, now is you've got YouTube. You can listen to almost all this stuff for free. Right. If you like it, then go out and, you know, and, and buy the album later on. But you don't have to take chances like we did back in the 80s. Oh, I wonder if this album is good or not. I'll spend 10 bucks on it and hope it's good. <laughs> right. You don't have to spend any money now. If you like it, you know, give it a test drive, and then you can buy it if you want to. So it won't cost you any money if you have access to a high-speed high Internet connection to uh, to listen to some of this stuff, so a lot of it's going to be individual taste. But I think you know if you like what you hear with guitarists like um, Vinnie Moore, or Tony McAlpine, then I think you're, you'll find more good and uh, good material in some of the other bands we mentioned. Excellent suggestion, and uh, we thank everybody for listening. And we'll be checking back in with you very soon with another guest. Take care.